You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. But I think that the the underlying requirement of being able to leverage these highly ubiquitous, highly trusted credentials in order to interact both online and off is going to continue to be a need today and going forward. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. we got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, Eric Levine, who is co-founder and CEO at Burbix, we're talking about identity fraud. All right, Joe, before we jump into our stories this week, we've got a little bit of follow-up here. What do we have? Right. This is actually something that was sent in from Chris. Uh, it was routed to me as a Catch of the Day candidate, but I don't think it makes for good mocking. So, <laughs> okay. uh, But I do think it's an interesting scam, and I wanted to talk about it because I haven't seen it in exactly this form. Chris writes, Dear Dave and Joe, I just got a wonderful text message from the least suspicious name of all time, hmm. which uh, he's being sarcastic. Okay. If you can't tell. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when I tried to text back a rather mean response just to see what would happen, I got back a demon from a different number. Uh, a demon is just an automated tool. So okay. It's, uh, it's a, a common term in computer science, particularly among us older computer science people. Mm-hmm. Uh, nowadays, they're called servers. Mm. <laughs> My favorite part of all this is the missing closed parentheses on the first text. Hope you are all doing well. And let me read to you what these look like or just describe them to you because they're kind of weird. He has a text that came in that says from an 866 number, it says card locked with an alert ID after the end of it. Mm. Uh, and I don't even know what this means. It's obviously designed to scare you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's, it, it is coming from uh, mobile-wellsfargo with a zero. <laughs> <laughs> unusual activity. Uh, it, it looks like an email address at calert.com, which mm-hmm. is, I don't know if that's a legitimate website or not. I haven't done any research on this, but mm-hmm. uh, it's it's coming in from this text. He texts back his mean response and he gets a, um, he gets a response from mailer demon that is, uh, that just reads undelivered mail sent to the, sent to the sender. Uh, mm. This mail was sent at host. So, in other words, he tried to respond to this email, and it was already shut down, it looks like. Oh, okay. Or this text message. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it looks like it was a scam that had started and then just got shut down pretty quickly. Things move quickly in the world of scammers. They do. They do. <laughs> but I thought this was interesting that, that, that what happened here is somebody just sent him a text message that was designed to scare him into some action. Mm-hmm. Uh, there may have been a plan for a follow-up call or something like that. Hey, this is Wells Fargo. Did you notice that your card's been locked? Uh, it's not Wells Fargo on the other end. This text wasn't sent from Wells Fargo. This is not how this works. Yeah. Okay. So thank you for sending that in, Chris. I really appreciate it. Yeah, interesting. All right, well, let's jump into our stories here this week. Uh, Joe, why don't you start things off for us? Dave, my story comes from Shannon Flynn over at TDWI.org. Uh, and the story is called Social Engineering Attacks, Preparing for What's Coming in 2023. Mm-hmm. So this is... Uh, uh, Shannon is doing some Nostradamus-like stuff here, uh, <laughs> and I, I will tell you this is a pretty easy thing to do, but there's, there are five things on this list. Uh, they are kind of like predictions of what we're going to see in 2023, and the okay. first one is something we've already seen a lot of, and that's doppelganger websites. Ah. Uh, it's essentially a clone of a website. 
So you and I have said many times on this show, but for our newer listeners, uh, the way the web works, everything you need to see the web page has to be presented to you in text. Mm-hmm. So when you download something from a website, uh, or when you host a website, rather, you have to provide everything to everybody that wants to see the website. Hmm. So that makes sense, right? But it's it's not like compiled code where I just give you a binary. I don't give you the source code. I literally have to give you the code because it's essentially an interpreted text. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. That's the HTML. HTML, is, the mm-hmm. cascading style sheets, the JavaScript, whatever else you have in there, yeah. uh, unless you have a compiled app, which most people don't put on their websites anymore because HTML has become very dynamic, okay. especially with HTML5. Uh, what this means is, as a bad guy, I can just go out and pull down all the resources from somebody and then put them up on my web server and with very little effort, I can change, I can have that site, a copy of that site, hosted on my server. And it looks like the real thing. And it looks exactly like the real thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these things are, have been out there for years. Uh, these are, uh, they're always getting better. That's really the issue, mm. is that they're just getting better and better. Um, there are some ways that you can uh, you can detect against this, but I don't know that, uh, you know, theoretical ways. But really, the best thing is check the address. Make sure you're at the right site. Mm-hmm. I would uh, add uh, a password manager password, can help here too. Password manager can really help. It'll keep you from logging in if you're not at the, the actual site. site. Yep. <laughs> right, and right. That, is, uh, that really works with your password managers that are integrated directly with your web browser. Yeah. So I recommend those. And some of those you pay for. Uh, and, and that's fine. I think paying paying a couple bucks a month for a password manager, it's, you know, it comes up to like less than 40 bucks a year. And yeah. I think it's well worth it. Sure. Number two, and this one is absolutely horrifying to me. Hmm. Shannon lists abuse of law enforcement privileges. Now, when I first read that, I'm like, well, we see that all the time. That's, <laughs> that's nothing new, right? But she's not <laughs> okay. talking about uh, police officers abusing their, their, their law enforcement privileges. She's talking about business email compromise in a law enforcement setting hmm. and getting into the, the, the sensitive information that they have access to. So if, if I'm a bad guy and I really want to get uh, people's attention, if I can compromise their business email or their, their law enforcement email address, I can really, really uh, get, a bunch of, get a bunch of stuff. There's things in here. In 2000, March of 2022, Apple, Meta, and Discord announced they had fallen victim to a cybersecurity scheme that led to users' data being leaked to hackers who abused something known as emergency data request. Oh, right. EDR. Right. Mm-hmm. So these guys impersonated law enforcement and got an EDR and just got a data dump from Apple, Meta, and Discord. Mm-hmm. So people, they were they were pretending to be law enforcement right. in order to get information from some of the big providers. Yep. Yep. That's one of the problems with these emergency data requests. You know, they can be abused. Right. It's, it's also one of the systemic problems and the constant push and pull we hear from law enforcement and from cryptographers. Right, law enforcement says we need a backdoor to get into the uh, get into the device when it's locked because we have urgent needs that need let us need to let us in. We need to get in to to for public safety, right? Mm-hmm. For public safety. Mm-hmm. Now here we see another example of why that's a bad idea. Mm. And uh, Matt Green at Hopkins has co-authored a uh, paper, a white paper called "Keys Under Doormats." If you Google that, he makes they. It's a, actually a group of people. They make a very good argument about uh, why that's a bad idea. Mm. And this, again, is an abuse of a law enforcement um, tool by malicious actors. Right. 
Number three, we've seen a lot of this already, but social media, social engineering attacks. Mm. Social, social. <laughs> I can think of no better place for a social engineering attack than something called social media. Right? <laughs> right. This is, uh, this is already on the rise. This is, this is really a, something that's already happened, I think. We're, we're seeing this all over the place. In fact, our catch of the day today comes from WhatsApp. Mm. Uh, so it's a, and it's a good one. So you're going to, uh, you're going to like it, but it's, there's a couple of issues with social media. The first one is the amount of information that's available about you on social media. Uh, when you're talking about companies getting breached, I I've said this before that LinkedIn is a great resource for open source intelligence gathering. Mm -hmm. Tells you everybody that works there. Tells you everybody you work with. Tells you who you should impersonate. If you want to scare this guy, tells you who his boss is. (laughs) It's uh, maybe, maybe your boss has written you a recommendation and that's on there. Uh, Mm -hmm. you can, you can divine that stuff from a lot of different places, but LinkedIn is very helpful. Mm. Facebook is no different. If you put too much information out on your Facebook page and it's all uh, public, then anybody can see it and they can scam you and impersonate somebody else. Right, right. In this in this uh, article here that, that you've shared, uh, they're also pointing out that there are people who uh, imitate influencers. They pretend to be the famous social media influencers to try to trick you into doing things. Yes. Interesting. Yes, maybe that's where the Tide Pod challenge and whatever other stupid challenge I just saw recently was. <laughs> Number four here is reputation ransomware. Hmm. Uh, this is like a, an attack on the reputation of a company if you don't pay me a ransom. This is also kind of new, but not really because there have been like DDoS ransomware, ransom attacks before, you know, pay us a ransom or we'll DDoS your servers. Right. Uh, you know, there's there's things that help with that now, companies like Cloudflare and other, other distributed uh, network services mm-hmm. that prevent distributed denial service attacks. Um, there's ways to defend against this, uh, distributed reputation ransomware. Uh, the FBI, the FBI, of course, strongly discourages victims from paying ransoms, cyber attacks. Uh, but, and and I would also encourage that because if you pay the ransom to these guys one time, they're just going to threaten to do it again, or they're going to sell your information and threat, somebody else will threaten to do it again. Yeah. Uh, not a great way to go about running your business. I think it's interesting. Again, this article points out that, uh, it's the threat of the reputational damage of, of having a data breach that the scammers are finding works just as well as the data breach. So right. They don't have to do the technical part. Nope. They just threaten you with it and say, you know, nice nice company you got here. It'd be a shame if something happened, something to, happened it. to it. Right. <laughs> right, right. Get a forensic investigation immediately hmm. if someone tells you you've been, a data, you've been breached. And finally, Dave, your favorite... Deep fake attacks. Mm. Is, Shannon is saying this is the year of deep fake attacks. I'm not convinced of that, hmm. that this is the year of deep fake attacks. Uh, what do you think, Dave? Well, it's funny you say that. I just did uh, a segment uh, earlier this week that has not aired yet, but um, I was speaking with Malek Ben Salem from Accenture. Right. Uh, and she is their uh, head of research. Uh, hard to find a smarter person in the world than Malek. <laughs> uh, every time she's on, it, it's a great interview. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and we were talking about this very thing, and and there's a combination of um, audio, real-time audio, like it's combining a chatbot with an automated video system where – uh, these things are at the point where they can respond with video in real time with a fake persona, a, a, a made-up person who can, on video, look like they're chatting with you and using the chat bot can respond quickly enough that you can have a conversation with them 
and it's you feel it feels like you're having a video call with them. Huh. Uh, so that's where we're right on the leading edge of that technology. So hold on to the bar. Okay. Right? <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Shannon is right here. But this is the year of the deep fake attack. Could be. Uh, now, is it purely synthetic or can, can you use, uh, could I do something where I impersonate Joe Biden? And I, I get a, a model of Joe Biden to be the person sitting there. Yeah, I, I, I would suspect you could probably do that. I, I think it's probably easier, maybe more effective to use a synthetic person because there's no expectation. There's no track record of knowing saying, wait, that doesn't sound like Joe Biden or right. you know, that doesn't sound like something Joe Biden would say or, or whoever you chose to imitate. So I don't think the video part is the hard part. You know, we've had that for quite a while now. Right. Um, where you can sort of, um, you can puppet a, a realistic video representation of someone. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that's the heavy lift. I think it's the real-time response with the chat bot. And we've seen, you know, just these past couple of weeks the, with the, uh, what is it, chat GPT, the, the chat bots are getting really impressive. Right. So interesting. So the, the last thing uh, Shannon puts on here, staying safe online, common sense and constant awareness mm -hmm. of potential hazards is everyone's best defense. I, I say constant awareness. Uh, I don't know about common sense because a, a lot of these things don't occur to, to people not steeped in technical fields mm. on the regs. So what qualifies as common sense to someone like you and me may not qualify as common sense to someone who's... Uh, never been, never understood what lies underneath the screen of a computer. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Hmm. All right. Well, that's interesting stuff for sure. We will have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, my story this week comes from an organization called restoftheworld.org. It is a uh, nonprofit news organization. Uh, and they have a article here written by Kapil Kajal, uh, coming out of India, and it's the sextortion scammers of rural India. Hmm. Um, and this is the story of people who find themselves getting extorted by people who reach out. The, this article starts out with um, uh, a gentleman who's a 30-year-old resident in a city in India, uh, got a message on Facebook Messenger from a woman, mm -hmm. um, started up a conversation, uh, and she... Uh, started being amorous. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. And was uh, a real woman though. Well, he thought she was. Okay. The profile picture looked real. Uh, they started a conversation and, uh, she said, uh, let's take this to another platform. Uh-huh. Moving off platform. Yep. Yeah. Red flag. Yep. Uh, and, uh, she proposed that they, uh, have, uh, an erotic encounter over a video call mm -hmm. and he couldn't resist. Uh, he said to the reporters here, what can I tell you? The other person offered, I agreed to do it. Yep. And, you know, Joe, uh, we can tut-tut this poor guy and, and uh, you know, raise, raise, sniff and raise our noses. But I'm not going to do that to this guy. I, you know, particularly, I think, when it comes to this sort of thing, as we, we talk about all the time here, it short circuits your critical thinking. It right? does, right? <laughs> there's a, you know, there's there's a beautiful person on the other side of the the call here who wants to be intimate with me. Uh, right. That's that sounds pretty good. <laughs> and so, what are the odds? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, that when I that's the thing I think. When what are the odds? Nobody <laughs> nobody wants that with me. So wow, you're hot. Sure I am. <laughs> 
So uh, this person fell for that, and yeah. uh, next thing he knows, uh, he's getting a video of his intimate call sent to him by people who are saying, hey, listen, we've got this video, and unless you start sending us money, we're going to share this video with uh, all of your loved ones, yeah. your your wife, your family, your, your friends, your employer, uh, so pay up. Right. And this person did. He felt like he didn't have any choice but to pay. Uh, now, we've talked about sextortion scams here before, yes, and have. so nothing uh, particularly interesting or unusual about what's described here. What I found particularly interesting about this uh, article and why I thought it was worth sharing is they actually speak with someone who is doing the sextortion. Really? They got in touch with—they they found someone, uh, and it is people in rural villages. The person they talked to here uh, was a former truck driver— Hmm. And uh, he said he was introduced to this sort of scamming by his relatives about four years ago. Uh, he said he was surprised to see that his relatives had abandoned their uh, work in the transport business as truck drivers. Uh, and they were doing quite well for themselves. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they suddenly had they had a big house and they had cars. And, and you know, these were folks who previously were, were had a, a solid living but weren't living high on the hog or anything right. like that. Uh, he asked about their sudden rise in wealth, and and they taught him all about how to do this sextortion type of thing. Okay. So uh, he goes through the process here. He says, first they create a Facebook account with fake details and photos of a beautiful woman that they've downloaded from the internet or taken from someone else's Facebook profile. He says, then they go on an outreach spree, sending friend requests to anyone they think could give them money. And as soon as the message is accepted, they try to get the target engaged before shifting to WhatsApp. Uh-huh. Right. So as you mentioned, as you as you uh, noted earlier, uh, shifting platforms, right. big, big red flag. Yep. Uh, this particular scammer said that uh, he keeps his bases covered by asking his sister, wife, or another local woman to speak to the target to falsely reassure them that the account is authentic. So a short phone call in a woman's voice to just set the hook, huh? right? Uh, and then once they get on a video call, the scammer shows the target a pornographic video of a woman in the process of removing her clothes. So pretending to be, the, so they find some sort of, you know, and boy, that's hard to find, isn't right, it, yeah. Joe? Something. <laughs> Where are you going to find that on the internet? Right, right. So, so they find a suitable video that is as, as of, you know, a beautiful woman taking off her clothes. And so the victim thinks, hey, this is, they thinks it's live, right. even though it's pre-recorded and just something that they found. Uh, so the victim plays along. And uh, meanwhile, the, the bad guys are recording the whole thing. Um, a couple interesting notes here. Uh, they, he says, if the other person sends money within five to seven minutes, we know they are rich and demand more from them. Uh-huh. However, if someone says they're a student and can't pay any money, we let them go. We mostly target rich people. Now, okay, so know your that that's that's a good way to get off the hook. I'm a student and I can't pay any money. <laughs> no, know your customer right. too. Uh, know your scammer. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's a funny little bit of honor among the. Yeah, I, I, I don't. I, I, I mean, I doubt that. Low, it's a low bar. <laughs> yeah, I think that maybe they hold on to that for a little while. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they use an online payment service, and, and they get their money. Mm-hmm. Um, they, this all, article also touches on law enforcement, which uh, in these small villages in India, 
uh, is hard to make work. Uh, people live, you know, they have small rural homes. Uh, they say the villages themselves, they have video surveillance at the entrances to the videos. And if they see law enforcement coming into the village, the men all run into the woods and they let the women handle the law enforcement people uh, basically by mobbing them and beating the crap out of them. What? <laughs> yeah. Yes. I shouldn't laugh, but... Uh, that, that's bananas. <laughs> what happened? So wait, the cops show up. Cops show up. The men know, flee. Men flee to... Yeah, and the women coming. take up arms, like with sticks and stuff. I, 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 who knows? But I think it's just a matter of there's so many people... You know, yelling, it's a mob. And so you get, let's imagine a single police car coming into a village. Oh, yeah. They're just overwhelmed. And they're not, they're not out to use deadly force against right. some, some scammers. But you the know. scammers are perfectly willing to beat up police officers. Right. To protect their business model. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, let the police officers know perhaps they should go somewhere else and leave them alone. And or have come it, back with more police officers. Well, they're, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Could be, a lot but more uh, it seems like that's not what's happening here. Right. The, the cops go— It's probably not a big priority for law enforcement in India. They probably have other things they need to worry about. Right, and who knows what the ability, how big the police forces are in these small yeah, villages. Yeah, who, I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah, I know that if you go to a rural part of uh, America, go, you go to West Virginia, mm-hmm. and you look at the number of state police officers they have, it is shockingly low. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this article points out that the conviction rate in sextortion cases is 1%. Uh, 1%. So they say there's an absence of proper cybersecurity laws and a lack of training for police. Uh, they say it's a golden age for cyber fraudsters in India. Yeah. And, of course, the, the victims here are reticent to file a case. Sure. Especially— It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing, but also they—yes, and they don't want their family to find out. So they're afraid that if they file a case— just doing that will people will find out what they did, right? And they don't want that to happen. Yep. So the bad guys get away with it, right? So I will have a link to this uh, article in the show notes. It's, I, I, it's very interesting that there's more details in this one on the scam side of it than I've seen in a lot of other articles. So uh, I think it's uh, worth a read. So we'll include that in the show notes. Uh, we would love to hear from you if there's something you would like us to discuss on the show. You can email us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from George, who writes in, Hi, Dave and Joe. Love the show and can't believe the emails that people are still sending that are so obviously scammed. Well, <laughs> they still send them, uh, George, because they work. That's, right. That's yeah. why. Yeah. Uh, I've noticed a lot now coming in on my phone via WhatsApp and such. So I thought I would play along with the scammer to see how long before they knew I was messing with them. And here are some great photos. Uh, Dave, do you want to play the part of, scam- of the scammer or of George? Uh, I will play the part of the scammer. All right. All right. And, here uh, we go. That is in the white bubbles and George is in the green bubbles. Okay. It starts out and it says, excuse me, is this Mr. Liam's number? Sorry, you have the wrong number. Oh, I thought this was Liam's number and I just wrongly sent to you. I'm so sorry. I hope you don't mind. No problem. Have a great day. Thank you. I hope you have a great day. Acquaintances, fate. Where are you from? 
Sorry, I'd love to chat, but I'm spending my time with this guy I met online. He's teaching me all about crypto. Really fun. You should do crypto too. <laughs> I started with a couple of hundred bucks. Now I've remortgaged my house and I've cashed in all of my investments. I'm killing it here. I've doubled my money in a week. I'm going to stop right here for a minute. <laughs> I want to remind everybody here that George is is, uh, is messing with the scammer <laughs> and that nobody should ever do this. Just in case anybody thinks remotely that this is a good idea. This is And George is knows this is a bad idea. Yeah, That's he's, why he's saying he's it. He's turned the tables. He's turn the tables. (laughs) All right. right. Well, the scammer goes on and says, you have a nice job, but careful. There is so many scammer. Thanks for the warning. By the way, I'm Rebecca from Miami. Where are you from? Nice to meet you, Rebecca, but I've got to leave the house right now. I've got to pop out to CVS to get some gift cards to pay off an outstanding IRS payment. Have a great day. (laughs) You too. I like making new friends. If you wish, we can be friends. LOL. Glad to hear you have plenty of friends. Good luck tracking down Liam. Where are you from? Sorry, I'd love to chat, but I'm spending all my time with this guy I met online. He's teaching me all about crypto. Really fun. You should do crypto too. <laughs> I started with a couple hundred bucks. Now I've remortgaged my house and I'm cashing in all my investments. I'm killing it here. I've doubled my money in a week. It's just a copy and paste from his previous message. It's okay, great. so you're doing cryptocurrency? Yes, I saw. Sorry, I can't continue this conversation. My nephew has just been kidnapped, and I've got to sell my house to pay the taxes on the crypto money so that I can pay the kidnappers. It's turning into a busy day. Are you telling the truth? Are you really going to sell your house? Hey, what are you doing? Is your house sold? Hi, I didn't end up selling my house. A friend warned me that this was probably a scam. Seems pretty obvious when I look back. <laughs> And then she responds with a bunch of smiley faces. He says, "You keep, uh, do you keep losing your phone? This is the third phone number you've had in as many days. And it's true. It, I'm looking at the top of these, these phone numbers, and they're coming across with, with three different phone numbers. Oh, I didn't, re- I didn't uh, yeah, I didn't see that. Yeah. Mm. And it's funny that you didn't see that because most people won't notice that. That's right. What's well, also interesting is the same that— picture. Right. It's the same picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, but— George points out that she changed her name from Rebecca to Lisa on her WhatsApp profile page. Oh. So, it, I mean, it's just constantly rotating. Uh-huh. These guys are always trying something new. One step ahead of the law. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, that is our catch of the day. And again, we would love to hear from you. Our email address is hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Eric Levine. He is co-founder and CEO at a company called Burbix. And our conversation centers on identity fraud. Here's my conversation with Eric Levine. We're in kind of an interesting inflection point as a society when it comes to identity fraud and fraud in general. Uh, Obviously, the digital transformation has been a process that's been ongoing for the past several decades But over the last two years with COVID, we've seen the extreme proliferation of platforms uh, making more and more services available online, which has opened the door for a lot of potential fraudsters to come in and take advantage of of the systems. And so that combined with the state of the world as it relates to data leakages, uh, you know, like the Equifax breach that happened several years ago, the amount of personal data that's available out there is enormous. Uh, And so it's a pretty large ongoing battle to try to manage the the fraud situation uh, as time goes on and people are having to turn to 
newer and more advanced methods to detect and deter that that fraud population. You know, I'm reminded of that classic, I think it's a New Yorker cartoon that says, you know, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. Um, and I wonder, you know, about the reality of that these days. I mean, you know, obviously anybody can log on to uh, an online platform. You can say you are whoever you are. But in this era of people being able to get so much information about you, is that sort of uh, anonymity or deception really possible these days? It absolutely is. Uh, I would say that by and large, while there are many new tools that have become available to help address uh, that question, that very question, the are you who you say you are, uh, knowing that the person that you're interacting with is not in fact a dog, uh, there are a lot of new tools that are available for actually addressing that. But by and large, it's still up to each individual platform to make a decision about what tools they are going to use in order to protect the people in their communities, on their platforms, uh, opening bank accounts, whatever the case may be. And so while there are tools that can quite confidently uh, tell you that someone is who they say they are, those are not, I would say, deployed at the scale that they would need to to really fully once and for all answer that question. Fun fact, I think that that comic that uh, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. I believe that that's actually over 30 years old at this point or is close to 30 years old. Uh, wow. And it's still very <laughs> much the case. Yeah. Well, um, can you walk us through a little bit of the history here in terms of uh, the, the various things that people needed to be able to log on to, where identity mattered, uh, and then you know how we got to where we are today and, and what is the state of the art? You know, when the internet was first getting started, you had your, you know, your bulletin boards, you had basically the ability to exchange documents through this hypertext markup language. You know, the, the need to know someone's identity was pretty limited. And so the tools that were available were pretty limited also, right? The actual ability to embed something like identity verification directly into the actual protocols that are being used to communicate across channels like the internet are pretty basic. Right. You have password authentication, but even that is like not widely used because most websites will opt to handle that on their own using their own systems and, and tools rather than leveraging the actual protocols underlying those. But, you know, the Internet today is a very different Internet than the one that we had 30 years ago. Right. The uh, In 1992, the needs of any given platform to know that the person who is interacting with them was was quite low. But. In this day and age, with more tools like being able to open bank accounts, like being able to arrange a date, like being able to go to someone's house to pick up a couch that you found on Craigslist, right? There's all these different situations where all of a sudden you're a lot more vulnerable, right? Whether you're a business or an individual to the potential bad actors who we know are on the internet. And so the state of the art has evolved, right? It, when you were opening bank accounts or doing any any sort of uh, identity verification, say in the uh, late 2000s, uh, early 2010s, you would see a lot of these uh, knowledge-based authentication, right? People, they would ask you questions like, what was the make of the car that you bought in 2005? And the, the thought process there was that this is information that's coming out of your credit file that only you could know. Uh, mm. But as we know, with the credit leaks that have happened, all of that information is much more widely available. And so the, the strength of those types of protections have weakened considerably. 
And so that's where, not to uh, self-promote too much here, but uh, one of the areas that uh, I was quite involved with was uh, the trust and safety efforts at Airbnb. I led the engineering trust and safety team for a number of years uh, where we were tasked with stopping all bad things from happening on the Airbnb platform. Uh, oh, oh that. that's a small task, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, but I think it's a really interesting point in that, I mean, we're talking about, you know, strangers showing up to another person's property, potentially, you know, their home that they're renting out. And so there are serious security concerns here. Absolutely. And I, I Frankly, I think Airbnb was on the bleeding edge of implementing a lot of the protections uh, in order to keep the the user base safe. Now, obviously, no system is perfect, and I'm not going to sit here and pretend that it is. But uh, what we found was that most fraudulent behavior, uh, whether that is like personal safety fraud or even financial fraud, ultimately comes down to typically people are misrepresenting their identity when they're interacting online. Right, because nobody wants to have to face consequences for doing something fraudulent, uh, and so they are going to misrepresent themselves. And so we did quite a lot of experimentation as it related to uh, sort of identity management. And one tool that we found was quite useful uh, was doing actual government issued photo ID checks. Hmm. And so we found that uh, you know this is a commonly accepted, ubiquitous token that almost everyone has that they can carry around with them that most people trust to say that this is in fact Dave Bittner, right? Right. Um, That people trust that. And so being able to take that trust, that common ubiquity of that particular token and use that as a way to prove your identity, even in online contexts, felt like the right natural next step. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. you, you don't think twice when you go to a corner store, buy a bottle of wine, they ask to see your ID. You hand it over to them and they're they're satisfied and you can move on, right? Mm-hmm. And so how can we take that same level of trust and strength and move it into a digital setting? And there are a lot of uh, companies that have been doing this for quite some time, but we found that uh, there was a, a gap when it came to the user experience that was provided by the existing verification services just due to the expectations of consumers uh, as it relates to instant gratification uh, and the sort of high quality type of inter- interfaces that people expect in this day and age. Right. Yeah. I mean, the people, I, I, particularly like for retailers, I suppose, you don't want to add any friction to those transactions. You don't want to, there's nothing more frustrating than hitting roadblocks when you're just trying to get something done online. That's exactly right. You know, people want to finish their purchase and move on with their lives. Uh, nobody wants to wait around for three to five minutes to find out whether or not their ID check was successful. Uh, and so that's really where uh, the, the state of the art has been evolving quite rapidly as it relates to being able to do these types of ID checks online, whether it is for opening a bank account or for other types of use cases, uh, like uh, two-sided marketplaces, uh, like if you're getting a babysitter to come over to, to uh, child sit your children you typically want to know who those people are. And so being able to leverage technologies like this can really enhance your trust or even with remote employment, right? If you're uh, hiring people remotely, which of course is much more common in this day and age post COVID than it was, uh, you know, in 2019, knowing that the person that you're bringing on board is who they say they are, is another critical application of this type of uh, identity verification technology. 
Well, I, I know, you know, the company that you are CEO of, Burbix, I mean, this is your area of expertise. So what is the state of the art these days? Uh Great question. And the state of the art has evolved quite rapidly. Uh, you know, everyone, not everyone, but the vast majority of people have high quality phones with high quality cameras in their pocket at all times. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the ability to capture high fidelity images of your IDs uh, in order to process those, the availability is quite wide these days. But when it comes to the state of the art, I think that there are a couple of areas that there's been a substantial let's say, evolution over the course of the last few years. Number one is speed, right? When it comes to that instant gratification and the expectations of those consumers to be able to complete their transaction successfully, people don't want to wait around. And so now there are services like Burbix that allow for that sort of instant validation of the IDs that are being uploaded to to those systems. So that's one area. Uh, Another would be, frankly, the confidence of the results that are being returned. It's Actually, you know, if you think about it, right, if you're uh, uh, someone who's 19 and you want to go to a bar, you can order a fake ID online and it's going to come to you. And you can take that to a nightclub or a bar and you can uh, give it to the bouncer and usually it'll work, right? Mm. If if fake IDs didn't work, then there would be no market for them. But they do work. Right? You're taking Uh, me back to my college days, Eric, but go on. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's hard. It's, it's, this is no disrespect to bouncers. Um, I think that it is a really challenging problem. How can you distinguish between a legitimate ID and a fake ID? Um, especially when there's no training courses, you know, it's, it's not, it's not a skill that there's, um, a whole lot of, uh, training available for. And so that said, there are services like Burbix. Uh, that can much more accurately and much more consistently distinguish between legitimate and illegitimate IDs based on the signals that uh, come off of those IDs themselves. Well, walk me through how something like this works. I mean, is this a, a matter of you know me setting up an account and 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 doing the the work of verifying, and then once I've done that, I'm good to go? Or how does it generally uh, work? Yeah. So in our case, the way it works is. Our customers are platforms that need to perform identity verification. So whether that is a two-sided marketplace or an e-commerce platform or whatever the case may be, a a bank. And so what they will do is they will integrate our software into typically their onboarding flow. And then when you go to create an account uh, to open your bank account, whatever the case may be, they will ask you to go through the verification process. And this will typically be take a picture of the front of your ID, take a picture of the back of your ID and scan your face to do the automated facial comparison between the face that's on the ID and the face of the person going through the verification process to ensure that it's Mm. actually your ID. Then once you've completed that, it's instantly available to, for our customers to be able to say, yes, this is a legitimate ID. Yes, this is Dave Bittner. Yes, the face of the uh, ID matches the person who went through the process. Let's go ahead and let them through or perform the additional downstream checks that we might need to do from a compliance perspective. And then d- does the system automatically have things in place that if it senses any red flags, there's more scrutiny? Yes. So... That's a a key part of any legitimate verification process is that you need to be able to distinguish between legitimate and illegitimate IDs. And this is not necessarily just fake IDs, right? Someone 
let's say uh, a very common pattern that we see is someone wants to get through uh, the, this type of process in order to commit fraud, they'll just Google California driver license, and then they'll take a picture of the first item that comes uh, that comes up and try to get through that process. And so we have basic protections for, for different common fraud vectors like that. Uh, but any of those will be flagged to our customer so they can either automatically accept the user if they deem that it is low risk, reject them if they are deemed to be uh, too risky or there are actual specific fraud vectors that they're seeing, or uh, at least in Burbix's case, we have the option for our customers to decide that they want to manually review and take a look at those uh, to give additional scrutiny before they let that user through or reject them. Where do you suppose we're headed with this? I mean, what, what is the, the future in a perfect world of, of uh, online ID verification? Yeah, you know, I would say we are in a very rapidly evolving space. Right, there are new uh, programs that are starting to be piloted by a number of the the states, at least domestically here, for digital IDs. Right, to actually be able to have a copy of your driver's license on your phone. I believe Colorado is one of the the uh, states that's been pioneering this, and mm. so that is one big advance that's happening today, uh, and is is really starting to uh, pick up steam where I'm sitting. Additionally, you know, there's a lot of additional work that's been done by Apple uh, to allow you to import your identity information into your Apple wallet in order to be able to use that rather than getting your ID out when you go through TSA. Now, it's only available in a handful of airports in a handful of states, but that is starting to happen. And so things are evolving pretty quickly here. But I think that the, the underlying requirement of being able to leverage these highly ubiquitous, highly trusted credentials in order to interact both online and off is going to continue to be a need today and going forward. Joe, what do you think? Dave, the state of the market is vastly different than it was 10 years ago. Hmm. I mean, the identity theft market, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There, there are many more services that are available online and like you can now open bank accounts online. I don't remember if you could do that 10 years ago, but maybe you could. But I mean, it's, it's a fairly recent thing. Mm-hmm. Up until recently, you've had to go into a bank to do that. Right. Um, <laughs> How quaint. Of, yes. <laughs> one of the things that Eric... And it hasn't been that long as if you were a woman, you had to take your husband with you. <laughs> so... That's, that's a good point. Things, yeah, things keep moving. When, the march when was of progress. That, that was... Early 70s. I mean, within our lifetime, right. a married woman could not open a bank account without her husband's permission. Yeah. Huh. Bonk- it's bonkers. It's that is bonkers. bonkers. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to ask my mom about that. Has she ever encountered that? Mm-hmm. One of the things that, uh, that he talks about here is the amount of data that's been breached about everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and Eric makes a good point, like with the Equifax breach. Just assume your data has been breached. Don't assume that it's been that your data is secure, even if it's aged. It's it, just assume your data is breached, and if you live with that assumption, then uh, you can behave in a way that that protects you a little bit better. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you get a credit monitoring service, or maybe you put a credit freeze on all your credit reports, which stops people from opening new accounts in your name. Right. That's a great idea. Eric talks a lot about what was going on thirty years ago. Thirty years ago, Dave was that nineteen ninety two. I was still using. Well, I guess now it's 1993. <laughs> okay. But in 1992 and 1993, I was still using Telnet. 
You yeah. remember using Telnet? I do. Yeah, like I do. Unencrypted, straight across the internet, mm-hmm. plain text Telnet. Right. There yeah. was no YouTube. There was no Facebook. There, there was, was no web, no... Dave. The web didn't come out till 1993. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Ugh. That's when wow. that launched. Okay. So, you know, the web is... Uh, we all know how that ended. Right. <laughs> Still a miserable fireball of death. Right. Um, no, the, uh, the, the web... Oftentimes, people mistake the web for the internet. It's not. The web yeah. is just a service that's on the internet. Okay. Uh, so, and it, it's what most users wind up using when they're on the internet. Yeah. But there are other, tons of other things you can do on the internet that don't necessarily use the web. In fact, everything that runs behind the scenes doesn't use the web. Some of it does, but a lot of it doesn't. Yeah. And we used to, we used to, this was, this was the, the nerdy way we used to bop around the internet. <laughs> right. That's right. We used to go to things like IRC channels or bulletin board mm-hmm. services that were connected. And yeah, yeah. the point is you didn't really need to identify yourself. Mm. If you had a cool handle, right? Yeah. Like you wanted to, oh, here's a book I read recently. I'm going to take the name of this vampire from this book. Right. I don't right. know anybody I'm, that did that. I'm Ziggy Stardust. Right. 83 or whatever. Or, yeah, my, <laughs> yeah. You didn't, you probably didn't even need 83 because there were so few users. Yeah. You didn't, it's true. It's true. <laughs> you were just out there. Yeah. Um, but the need to identify yourself didn't exist. There were services that were happy to let them use you, let you use them anonymously. Well, and and that was that was a feature, not a bug, right. back then. Yeah. And I I I mean, it, to me, I think uh, cybersecurity, infosec, is one of the few places where. There's a handful of old timers who are still going by their old handles. Yeah. Right? <laughs> That's probably correct. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Yeah. Eric talks about knowledge-based authentication, mm-hmm. and that is of very little use uh, because all that information is available to you at mm. any point in time. Uh, if you remember when Sarah Palin had her Yahoo account breached, mm. somebody hacked into her uh, her personal Yahoo account by just looking on Wikipedia to find all the answers to the knowledge-based authentication questions for the password reset algorithm. Right, right. Um, right. And this was back before multi-factor authentication was commonplace. Yeah. So you really can't uh, can't blame the the user here. This is something that has to be, well, maybe, I don't know. I don't like blaming the victim. Yeah. Um, but I'll tell you what I do when they ask me a question, like, what, what high school did you go to? I don't tell them I went to Paint Branch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't say that at all. Because mm-hmm. that's available on my Facebook page if you look that up. Right. You, oh, look, look where he went. Um, I tell them I went to, like, uh, I just pull something out of my head. Like what just popped in my head now was like Goofy Goober University or something like that. Right, or right. SpongeBob. I just pull something completely <laughs> unrelated out of my head. Yeah. And put that down and I make a note of that in my password manager. Yeah. Uh, I've never had to use that information. Actually, I've seldom had to use that information. I do, I have had to use it in like when I log in from a new place uh, and they're saying, oh, let's use a knowledge-based authentication to verify that this is actually you. Right. Which is kind of a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, for exactly the reasons I've just explained. Mm-hmm. But then I have to go to my password manager, look at my notes, and say, okay, I went to Goofy Goober University for high school. <laughs> right. Um, fraud comes down to misrepresenting your identity when you're online. Yeah. That's really the basics of it. I mean, it's a fundamental thing. It's 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 the same crime that if you were misrepresenting your identity walking into a, a bank 40 years ago, 50 mm-hmm. years ago. Right. It, it's There's nothing different. You're just doing it with a different means. Nobody can tell online that you're sweating bullets. <laughs> right. Yep. As you said in the, in the video or in the interview, nobody knows that you're a dog. Right. <laughs> People want to get stuff now uh, and merchants don't want to introduce friction to that process, right? Mm-hmm. Because the vast majority of your sales are going to be legitimate sales. But every now and then you're going to have some portion of your business that is fraudulent sales. Yeah. And 
cost of doing business. It is a cost of doing business. And mm-hmm. it, depending on what that what that percentage is, if that percentage is low, like less than 1% of the sales that you make are are fraudulent sales, that might not impact your bottom line very much. Yeah. You may be perfectly willing to let that go. And when, whenever you see a problem crop up, terminate that account, and, you know, keep playing the game of whack-a-mole because that's more profitable than telling the user, stop, stop, stop. We need you to upload a photo ID. We're going to send it to Burbix or a company like them to have them identify it. Then we're going to need you to get online and have a, have a video chat with somebody for a second. And you know, then maybe uh, we'll have to have some human involvement. They don't want to do that. Yeah, they don't want to do that because that 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 makes the user go. I'm not giving you my ID, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. What are you going to do with that data? Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. Who knows? But it it does introduce friction. It does slow down the sales process. And in online marketplaces, online sales, you don't want to do that, right? Uh, I like the system that Eric describes at at Burbix. It sounds like it's pretty good and it's pretty automated, so it's pretty quick. But yeah. if there's something that is flagged as this is suspicious. Then you can get humans involved and have them uh, do it. It's a pretty good interview. I, I, I enjoyed listening to it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate uh, Eric spending the time with us. Uh, again, he is from Burbix, and uh, we appreciate him sharing his expertise. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We want to thank Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at harborlabs.com and isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.